0: Marriage is under attack, and the devil is working on overtime to separate and divide all of us. And the one place that he works hardest is the place that hurts the most. You know what the place that hurts the most is? Your home, because it's personal. And so the first thing that I wanna point out to you is the fact that if the devil can divide your family in any way, shape, or form, he can divide your house, and ultimately, he can win the battle. That's why Jesus said in Mark 3.25, if a house is divided against itself, it can't stand. Now, this scripture, the context of this scripture in Mark chapter 3 is powerful. Jesus is casting out demons, laying hands on the sick, teaching the gospel, preaching, and he's surrounded by a ton of people. Imagine me in the middle of the sanctuary, and I'm, and all of us are crammed in in a much smaller room that we can't even eat. Nobody's getting a bottle of water. I mean, we're crammed in packed. And Jesus is just setting people free and teaching and bringing deliverance. He's even casting out demons. It's all in this chapter. And so the Pharisees accused Jesus of, of doing it by the spirit of Beelzebub. Now, Beelzebub is a term, I mean, it's like even more degrading than devil or Satan. It's like the low of the low, because Beelzebub was actually a Philistine deity that was called the Lord of the Flies or the Lord of the Dung. So Jesus, in this very chapter, gets accused of doing it by, a de- by the Spirit. So Jesus makes this powerful statement. He says, not even the devil can have a divided kingdom. Because if the devil's kingdom is divided, he won't make it to the end. He says a family, a city, or a house divided against itself cannot stand. And that's why the enemy's kingdom may be organized to bring destruction to your kingdom and to destroy your marriage and destroy your home and destroy your family. That's what the devil's mission is to do because ultimately it hurts the heartbeat of God and stops what God intended, or at least he tries to, on the earth. And so right before Jesus made that statement, he said, or we have this incredible statement about Jesus ministering in the house, and I want to show it to you. It's Mark chapter 3, verse 21. We just go four verses back, and we hear this. When his own people heard about what Jesus was doing, they went out, his own people being his family, they went out to lay hold of him, and they said, He's out of his mind. You know, it hurts a lot more when it's your family. It hurts a lot more when your own parents or your own siblings or a spouse comes against you for your faith. I don't know what it is. I can handle a long-lost friend. I could even handle any of you. But when it's my family, it's so much more personable, so much more personable. And so the enemy will even at times try to use your own family to persecute you and come against you. Even Jesus' closest friends and family didn't understand his mission. They didn't understand what his purpose was in the kingdom. And what I want you to know is that there's a greater reality that we see and understand that unbelievers, even family, don't. That's why in John 3, 3, Jesus said, it's critical that you get born again so that you can what? See. When you're not born again, you're not able to see, meaning that you're blinded. And so people that don't know Jesus, people that are not born again, even your own family are never gonna understand. So why would we have the same expectation? Why would we get offended? Why would we get hurt? Why would we get so upset? Besides the fact that it's our own family, which it really hurts, right? But the point I'm trying to make is that people that do not know the Lord when, and they're not born again, are not going to have the same reality and understanding that we are. And the only way that they're going to see what we see is when they get born again. Notice this, the word. Unless you're born again, you can't see, John 3, 3, the kingdom of God. So they have no awareness of the kingdom. This point is really driven home in several cases in the Bible, particularly in 1 Corinthians two 14. 1 Corinthians two fourteen says that anybody that does not have the Holy Spirit or does not receive it or is in the natural man will see the things that we believe and adhere to as foolishness. When I gave my life to the Lord, I love my family. My mom's now with Jesus. She got bored again. And uh, I'm believing that for the rest of my family. But right after I gave my life to the Lord, I had just come right out of prison. And my parents said to me, You've, you're only a Christian because you went to jail. And then they said, this will pass. We'll just give it some time. Now, here we are 26 years later, and I'm more on fire today than I ever was then. Yeah. But I'm trying to drive home a point because we're going to talk about unbelieving spouses. If you don't get some main things, the main thing, how you treat an unbeliever, no matter who they are, your family, a friend, or somebody you don't even know, is critical they're not gonna understand. They can't know. They're spiritually blinded or discerned, meaning that they have no discernment. And then Hebrews eleven six 6 is a powerful scripture. If somebody doesn't have faith, they can't know God. They can't please God. They have no reward for their diligent seeking. But when we diligently seek, we have a reward. So I'm trying to help you first understand a few critical and important things when it comes to people that don't know Jesus, they don't have the same understanding the way that you will. So when I'm witnessing to a, a coworker or an employee or a friend or a family member, I'm patient. And I often say this one thing until you, you know, most of the time you want to know the answer before you take the leap of faith. But in Christianity, you take the leap of faith first and then you get the understanding. <laughs> right? So you gotta first say, okay, Lord, I don't have it all figured out and I don't even understand, but Lord, I'm gonna surrender all to you because I do believe you exist and I do believe you care for me and I do believe you're coming after me. So here I am, I surrender and bam, the veil's lifted and your eyes are open. Some of you are trying to see, but you haven't been born again or gotten regenerated by the Holy Spirit and it's never gonna work. You're trying to figure it out in advance. You've got to surrender all if you're really going to understand. And so this is a difficult topic and a difficult situation. You have a family that doesn't believe. And they're possibly persecuting you. It's way more personal when it's family. But in Jesus's case, if you go back to the first scripture that I quote, or uh, to Mark thirteen twenty one, his family took it to a whole nother level. They said he had mental illness. Because to what does it mean? I read as go back to Mark 321. I read when they said he's out of his mind. I'm sorry, 23. 323. When they said Jesus was out of his mind, that's pretty intense. It's kind of like me saying, You're crazy. (laughs) You believe Jesus talks to you, Leroy? You actually believe that there are demons and angels and spirits? You actually believe that you can lay hands on the sick? You actually believe God talks to you in dreams? You actually believe that you can be transformed by the power of the blood of Jesus? You actually believe that the Father sent his only son to die on a cross because he loved you? Somebody's going to say, you're crazy. It's already happened. It's already been in the news. So Jesus is is surrounded by all these people he's ministering to, and his own family came to take him out and said he is Crazy. He's lost his mind. But I want you to look at Jesus' response. Let's just go to verse 32. The multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Jesus answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him, and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother, my sister, and my mother. Now, let me help you understand this difficult passage because I've never taught on it, and maybe you've never heard anybody teach on it, but I'm going to make a pretty bold statement. Membership or allegiance to God's spiritual family in the kingdom, which is evidenced by obedience to God is more important than membership or allegiance to our own natural family. Doing the will of God is the key, and it's also the defining factor for spiritual kinship. Being obedient and doing the will of God is the defining factor. But Jesus made a profound point, and he said, whoever does the will of God, those are the ones that are my mother, my brother, and my sister. Let me help you understand it this way. If we can swallow a son or a daughter growing up and getting married and being more united or allegiant to their spouse and their family, why can't we be okay with a son and a daughter or a relative giving full allegiance to Jesus and his family? Now, I know I'm leaving you, I know your wheels are spinning. And I know I'm leaving you with a lot of questions that hopefully I'm going to answer. The point I'm trying to make is Jesus made a profound point. His parents are outside, or his family. They're saying he's out of his mind. They're trying to take him out of what he's doing in the will of God. Jesus makes a profound statement, who are my family? Those who do the will of God are my family. Again, it's a difficult understanding. And it's one that I believe all unbelieving parents will not understand. I don't think any believing parent, unbelieving parent, is going to understand what I'm saying because they don't understand, okay? But I want to make this point. We are called to honor our family and our parents biblically. Having a spiritual family that comes first before an unbelieving family does not preclude us from honoring our parents. It doesn't preclude us from loving them. It doesn't preclude us for caring for them. And it doesn't preclude us from supporting them in every way possible. We're called to support our family. We're called to love them and honor them and do all we can to take care of them. But nothing comes before Jesus, nothing. In fact, we are also called to forsake all. We're called to forsake all, no matter what the cost is. We're called to forsake all, no matter what the cost is. So I'll just take it a little bit deeper for you. In Mark chapter 10, Verse 28, Peter comes to Jesus, and Peter says, I have forsaken everything to follow you. I've given up everything. And I want you to notice Jesus' response in verse 29. Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house, brothers, sisters, father, mother, or wife. And we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. What it means to have to leave in certain situations. But no one has left them or children or lands for my sake. For whose sake? For Jesus' sake and the gospel, who shall not receive a hundredfold when? It says now in this time. Because here in a minute, it says you're also going to get something in ages to come. So the point is is that, that the Lord's saying is when your family forsakes you, And when you make the decision to forsake all for Jesus and the gospel, he says, I'm gonna give you a new family and I'm gonna give you more stuff than you ever had. But there comes a point where you have to forsake anything and everything to follow Jesus. Now, we don't have this problem when your parents and your brothers and your sisters are living for Jesus. We don't have this situation arising when your family's living for the Lord. And I pray and hope you'll never have to forsake anybody. I don't want you to forsake anyone, ever. But nothing comes before Jesus and the gospel's sake. That's what he said. He made it really, really clear. Now, my family's born again. My, or at least my, do- my daughter is. She gave her life to Jesus. I believe my son will be soon to follow. He's three. So Jesus Jesus is my number one. I love Jesus more than anyone or anything. And my wife is like about as close as close can get. And then my children. And then I believe might that God's kingdom comes even before career. Cuz I believe if you make it your ambition to take care of God's people, God'll say, "Oh, here's the better jobs, here's the promotions, here's the money you need." When you say, "Look, Lord, I want to build your kingdom." He says, "Well, I'm going to help build yours." I may be saying some stuff you may not agree with today, but you can eat the bone, eat the meat and spit out the bones. I'm just telling you right now, that when you have a when you have family that does not believe, and especially if they're persecuting you, you have a better family and you're called to forsake all. Now I want you to notice another thing here. He says, you're going to receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands with BAM. You're still going to have persecution. Anybody that makes the decision to live for Jesus is going to be persecuted. Anybody that makes the decision to live with God loves. Show it to you in the scriptures. So Here's what I really want you to catch. Get over the persecution. Stop taking it so personal. Wow. I mean, you're like shocked because somebody spoke negative about your faith. You're shocked because somebody said you weren't the real dude. You're not really a Christian or you're just getting on the bandwagon or it's just a crutch or you're just a good little church lady now or a good little Christian churchgoer oh, you're so holier than thou, you're so spiritually good, you're no heavenly minded, and they're persecuting and they're persecuting you. You need to have an inward resolve of grace and understanding and love and not get angry and defensive because that's not what Jesus did. Persecution's gonna happen. And so I'll conclude the point this way. Though we forsake all for Jesus in the gospel, God gave insight for our unbelieving family to be saved and he wants them to be saved. He wants that. And I want that. And I don't want any of you to be in that situation with a divided family. But sometimes it's gonna happen. Sometimes a spouse, a parent, a child, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle is gonna think you have lost it. You're crazy. What's the matter with you? And you go to, especially coming to Rock City Church. I'm just letting you know right now. That's why the greatest way that the enemy could stop what, he want, what the Lord wants to do in this church is to divide us get you mad at me, get you to not stay, get you isolated. Get you pitting against each other, divisive, you know, isolating in groups, looking down on others, divisions, thinking somebody's better than the other. I'll set the standard. I'll take the worst table, worst seat at the table. I don't care. So look, I know I'm hitting some difficult topics. Let me just say this to you. When my family made the decision not to live for Jesus, God brought me into a new family. Do I still love and care for them? You bet. Do I, will I still go to family reunions? Yes. Will I still want to go have dinners and hang out? Yes. Will I still go fishing? Doesn't mean I'm not honoring and doesn't mean I'm not spending time with them. But God has brought me into a new family. So when you are orphaned or abandoned or rejected, now you, God gives you a new family. Just look around. Here's one. And guess what? This one is a part of millions all over the world. All over the world. All over the world, there's people just like us. Makes me want to sing a Darlene check song. My wife's like, who? Darling, Jack? Oh, you know who she is? Sorry. Oh, that's right. (laughs) Hey, let's not fight right here. This isn't a good thing. All over the world, there's people just like us. The scripture gives us a hope and a promise for our family to be saved. And it's Acts 16.31. This is a great story where the jailer and his family gets born again. And I love Acts 16.31 because it's something that you can grab onto for your children, for your family, and for your future. And in Acts 16.31, the jailer gets asked, what must I do to be saved? He gets asked by the guards, or I'm sorry, by the prisoners. And he says this profound statement, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you and Who? So what we want to do is we want to believe for our family to get saved because it makes life's it makes family reunions a lot more fun. This isn't a, it makes Thanksgiving dinner a lot more fun. How about that, all right? So though it's not a guarantee that your family will always get born again, I want you to know that I have great faith for my family and your family. And I have great faith <clears throat> to see our family get born again. And there's a way that we can witness to them in love and grace and humility. Please, don't take it so personal. How you believe, how you live, how you overcome persecution, how you follow the will of God can all be the defining factors in opening the door to salvation for your family. You might be the greatest witness. You might be the number one key that does it. So if you're getting offended, taking it personal, getting angry, if you're so disgusted by the fact that they're living ungodly, we got a problem. Because Jesus, in the midst of all that, did a few incredible things. He gave his life freely for the unbeliever. He died for all. He blesses everyone with sunshine. He blesses everyone with the rain. He blesses us all with his creation So if you're going to go hang out on the beach today, which is a great day for that, you get to enjoy what God created for you. You know why? Because he loves you. All of his creation is a picture of God's love for you, every one of you. And so God loves everyone. In fact, he even took it a step further and gave instructions, and we teach this a lot, on how we're to treat the unbeliever. Love them, pray for them, speak kindly of them, Don't retaliate. Don't take vengeance into your own hand. God God laid his life down for an unbeliever. And it's going to happen. And all of us probably, or most of us, maybe not all of us, most of us in this sanctuary or watching online probably has an unbeliever in their family. And how well you love, how well you honor, how well you reflect, how well you live your life is critical If you're single, I can't emphasize enough to you how important it is that you marry right in God's eyes. If you're single, please hear me. I don't ever want you to be in a situation with an unbelieving spouse, and I'm gonna talk about unbelieving spouses here in a moment, but I don't ever want you to be in a situation where you have a spouse that doesn't believe the way that you do. I can't tell you, and I hope I don't get myself in trouble with this, How many couples I counsel where one was Catholic, one was Baptist, and they didn't care when they got married. But as they grew older, suddenly one of them wanted to go back to their roots of how they were raised. And it creates a huge divide of conflict. Different belief systems, different visions, different ideologies, different theology. So to everybody that's single here, let me give you some advice. Start right. And Do what we tell you to do. Let me just tell you right now. When I counsel, uh, uh, do premarital, I start right off the bat. This is never going to work if you don't do what I tell you to do. And they're like, I'm just, because I'm going to follow the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give good counsel. I'm going to give good doctrine. I'm for them, not against them. But if I, you're wasting my time and yours if you don't want to do the things that we ask you to do. Now imagine a whole family surrounding you so that when you get married like Oscar and Olivia just did, it's supernatural. God pours out his spirit and we have the most profound wedding that we've ever had. And the, half, 80% of the church is there. And now they've started right even with a broken path of divorces. And they're firing on all cylinders, spiritually lit up. So starting right is important. Starting right is important, okay? So let's talk, let's shift gears now and talk about a situation that some of you may be in or you may know somebody that's in, and it's a topic that uh, needs to be addressed. The Bible has a lot to say about it. It's not something I'd probably normally talk about on a Sunday morning, but we've got to talk about it. We're talking about unbelieving family, spouses, parents, sons, daughters, relatives, And that is one of the most difficult things is to be married to an unbelieving spouse. Now, let me tell you that I I have come up with three potential ways that you could be married to an unbelieving spouse, okay? One way is you just chose to marry an unbelieving spouse. Don't do that. We're not going to talk much about that. Just don't do that. The Bible says don't be unequally yoked. Marry somebody, be in a relationship. Don't even date somebody if they're not on fire and praying in tongues. That's my attitude. All right, so that's the first situation. We're not gonna talk much about that. Just don't do it. Really, just look. Don't do it. The second thing, the second way that I could see this happening is two people get married as unbelievers. However you met, whatever your past was, okay? Two people meet, fall in love, they don't know Jesus, you're not born again, and then at some point, one of the spouses gets born again. Something happens. God shows up on the scene, and they get rocked by the Holy Spirit, okay? Now you have a situation where one spouse is a believer and the other is not, okay? Let's say the other spouse still just didn't get the experience that the one spouse got, and they're not a believer, okay? The third scenario would be where one spouse in a, mar- in a marriage relationship decides to walk away from God. And they say, I don't want to live for Jesus anymore. I'm angry. Maybe something traumatic happens. Could have lost a child, lose a family member. We've been through that. And they get angry at God. And then they renounce their faith and they walk away. Okay? Now, this is different than backsliding, okay? I'm not talking about they fell into sin or they made a mistake or they're you know, struggling with belief or they believe but they screwed up in something. I'm not talking about that, okay? And even though adultery or infidelity does give an out for divorce, it's still not God's best. And I know many couples, and there are some married couples here, where there has been affairs and they've reconciled and forgiven and overcame it, Okay? And let me just make sure, if you have not read the book of Hosea, just enjoy your nighttime reading of reading the book of Hosea. Because God called the prophet Hosea to marry a harlot. And he did it for a reason to show how much his people were in harlotry when he would come and rescue them and buy them out of slavery. Because even, man, there's an anointing on that. His wife fully walked away, and wound up getting into so much bondage, she got sold into human trafficking. And guess what God commanded Hosea to do? Go buy her back. Because guess what God did for you? He bought you back. Just smile at that for a moment. It feels so good. He bought me back. He bought me back. Okay? So he's full of forgiveness and grace. What are you all giggling about up here? Oh, you're crying? You guys are crying? Here yeah, here's some more tissues for you. It's a powerful story. You know, and when you realize how much mercy and grace the Lord's had on you, how come you can't have it on someone else? We've all screwed up. We've all made mistakes. Some worse than others, I get it. But the Lord in his love gave his life, okay? So let's talk about some of these situations uh, in the case where the spouse, one spouse becomes a believer and the other's not, you have an incredible opportunity to win your other spouse to the Lord. In fact, I see that more often. When one spouse gets born again and flamed on spiritually, if you do it right, you'll actually win the other one to the Lord, okay? That's not so difficult to do. Now, if they're an atheist and they never believed or they had a traumatic childhood and none of, this, none of their junk has ever been dealt with, There's still a biblical way to handle somebody that's not obedient to God's word or living for the Lord. And so I want to show it to you in the Bible. First Peter chapter three, verse one. Are you guys okay, by the way? So this is, this starts out talking to wives, but here's the good news, ladies. In verse seven, it addresses husbands and it makes a very clear point. Husbands likewise. So in every single thing we're about to read, the same onus is on the husband. But there's a unique addressing to a woman here in this part, okay? And so we're going to talk about that right now. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. Now let me say this about submission. Last week in our message titled Marriage Alignment, I gave a pretty good synopsis of what submission is. Submission is not control, authority, ruling over, and you being a doormat. Okay. Submission also doesn't mean that you're not equal. And in fact, verse 7 in this bank of scriptures is going to show you that we're joint heirs for the grace of life. We're heirs together. Okay? So God sees us together, husband and wife, as equal and as one. No, not one is greater than the other. Okay. But submission is important for you to understand, and submission is something that you do voluntarily. And you understand why, and we're we're called to be mutually submitted to each other. So if you didn't listen to last week's message, Marriage Alignment, my wife talks about submission and what that looks like for her, and I talk about it, and we talk about what our marriage looks like in that context, okay? So, wives, be submissive to your own husbands. And even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives, That when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Let me help break that down for you. Your conduct and the way you live your life is critical. The word conduct can also mean manner of life or your conversation. And they go hand in hand. You know why? Because from the treasure of my heart is the way that I'll speak. My mouth speaks what's inside of me. And so an unbridled tongue is a sure telltale sign of an unbridled heart. Okay? So conduct has to do with the way you live and the way you talk. The word chaste is an incredible word because the word chaste actually means to not live carnally minded or a carnal lifestyle. And the word carnal, in case you didn't remember, is where we get the word flesh carnivore flesh eating it's where we get the the word human nature or animal nature so somebody that's not bridled with chaste conduct by the lordship and the holy spirit will live like an animal it'll all be all about sex it'll all be all about partying it'll all be about money it'll all be about your the, the the how you look what you wear materialism all that stuff and so It says, without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. So your conduct, ladies, can actually win your husband over. And what is the conduct that God wants you to have? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 3. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. This is powerful. Yes, the Bible commands you to be submitted to a husband, even if he's not being obedient to God's word, or even if he's not a believer. The Bible does tell you that. And it says that you have a way that you can win them over. And the way that you win them over is the way every single person in the sanctuary should be living, with chaste conduct. Me too even the men, but something's powerful when a woman loves well and lives well and is bridled by the Holy Spirit and is walking in holiness and purity, regardless of what their husband does. It's so powerful, and I want to show you what it does. It says again in verse 4 that the hidden person of the heart with incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the what of God? In the sight of God. You know why? Because he's watching. And if you fight and buck and kick and rebel and act not like a Christian, you actually hinder God from doing what the Lord wants to do in your spouse's life. You're not gonna be able to win him over like that. God wants you to win your spouse over. That's what he wants you to do. And so notice that it's a gentle and quiet spirit. Let me tell you what a gentle, quiet spirit is not. It's not a personality type. Has nothing to do with introvert or extrovert. Let me tell you what else a gentle and quiet spirit is not. It's not you being a doormat. A gentle and quiet spirit is a posture of my heart that causes me to walk in rest. It causes me to walk in understanding. It causes me to be at peace no matter what Amber does. And that takes work, but the point is is that it... it... (laughs) So... uh, (laughs) A gentle and quiet spirit is a, is a place of rest. It's a place of peace internally. And what happens is it's precious in God's sight. And what it does is it positions you to win your husband or your wife over. It, it can go both ways. And this point is talking specifically to wives, but it's also to men. And I'll show it to you in just a moment. And so God is watching. The Lord cares and he wants to fight on your behalf. And he doesn't want you living in a relationship where your husband isn't living for Jesus. In the context of not being adorned with fine gold and clothes and all those things, the point was this. What matters the most is what's on the inside, not what's on the outside. Does it matter what's on the outside? Sure, that's important too. You know, God wants us to take care of ourselves physically. He wants us to, to be healthy and it's important for our spouses. I know that's true too. But what matters more is what's on the inside. And the point that's being made is don't try to win your husband by how hot you are. So it's the, it's the internal hidden person of the heart that makes you who you really are. And that's what transforms your situation, okay? So if you're, if you're bucking and kicking and fighting and rebellious and angry and fighting back, that's not how God wants you to live, And God sees what's on the inside is most important, and bridled by the Holy Spirit is what God cares about, that you have a bridled heart. So then it goes on, I'll fast forward a little bit, it goes on to say that uh, you should study the holy women of God from the Bible. I teach about women here on on occasion. Next week is Mother's Day. I'll be talking about, of course, women in ministry. I love to do that. And I might even talk about Sarah because the scripture goes on to say that Sarah is a great example for you. And any woman that is a born-again Christian is a daughter of Sarah. It's right there in the Bible. Okay? But then it says, no fear of terror. Now there's several ways to interpret no fear of terror, but let me tell you how I'm gonna interpret it. You should never live in fear or be terrorized. Ever. Verbal and physical abuse are never okay. And they are cause for separation, and if it doesn't stop, inevitably, divorce. I'm just telling you, abuse is not okay. And there are times when couples are about to kill each other, and I'm like, you need to separate now. And it doesn't stop, and they keep getting violent and abusive, and people are getting hurt, and kids are witnessing it. In that case, divorce is permitted. It's not what I want. It's not what God wants. It's not God's best. God hates it, and I hate it but I'm never okay with abuse. And if you're in an abusive situation, get help. Get help fast. It's never okay. And God's not okay with it. Get with a leader, get with somebody, talk to somebody, bring it into the light, get help. Okay, we have a plan for separation and there are times for separation. And I'll show you that here in a moment. And there is a strategic way that you you can separate, but I'll tell you, God doesn't even give you an easy out on the separation because he says when you separate, you should be fasting and praying. Not going and checking out at the bars and living a party lifestyle and rebelling and getting drunk. And it's not how separation works. Okay. Verse seven. Let's get off the women for a moment. Verse seven. Let's just read the first two words Husbands likewise. Let's just stop right there. Husbands likewise. God doesn't put an expectation more on one than the other. Husbands, likewise, should be living in the same manner and treating their wives. In fact, we should be even treating them better. I didn't get a lot of shouts out. Maybe maybe I'll get a shout out on this one because I'm going to tackle the weaker vessel thing. I got all the women's attention now. So it says, husbands, likewise, dwell with them. With understanding is a very important word. Giving honor, very important word, to the wife as to the weaker vessel. And as being heirs together of the grace of life so that your prayers won't be hindered. So here's what I wrote down. I hope I get this right. (laughs) Weaker vessel does not mean having less moral stamina strength, character, or mental capacity. But rather, knowing your wife's needs, strengths, and weaknesses, knowing what her goals and desires are, you empower her. We should know as much as possible about our wives in order to respond in the best way that she needs. Okay? Thank you. I appreciate that. So now I'm going to really, I can hear my wife saying, but you still didn't really answer the question. So let me just answer the question to you. Weaker vessel in this context is used many other times in the New Testament solely in the context of physical strength. That's it. Not moral character, not anything else. We're as completely equal in every way. Okay. However, she's not as strong as me, but there are some women around that are probably stronger than me. I need to be getting back to the gym, is what I'm saying, right? The point doesn't have to do with, spirit, with physical strength. The point has to do with the understanding of we are to be fully preferable and laid down in love and supporting and cherishing and propelling and promoting our wives, period. That's what matters the most, okay? And then it goes on to say that we're equally heirs together in all God has for us and for his people. So there's no distinction, we're equal. And when any of us doesn't adhere to God's biblical standards in marriage, you know what he does? He actually holds his prayers back from us. Read it right there. Right there. That your prayers may not be hindered. So if I treat my wife terribly and dishonor her, and don't love her right, and then I go to God, like, God, man, please, I need money for this, or open the door for that, or Lord, I'm just praying for this, 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 and that, and the Lord's saying, get your marriage right. This is my last group of scriptures, and then we will close the reclaimed marriage and family series. Are you guys ready? Okay, (laughs) thank you. 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 16. Paul is speaking specifically to married couples, which is the rest, says, I not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife, so notice he starts out, this is what the Lord's saying. If any brother has a wife who does not believe and she's willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they're holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So I'm going to break this all down for you quickly. You ready? Divorce is not an option if an unbelieving spouse still wants to live with you as a believer and is not abusive or an adulterer. You don't get an out, okay? So you get born again, your spouse isn't, but they're like, hey, more power to you. Go to church as much as you want, serve Jesus, love Jesus. I love you, but I don't love Jesus, and I want to still stay with you, but I don't love him. You are called to stay with that spouse, okay? Okay? Your only outs come with abuse or adultery. And in some cases, the Lord will override that because at the end of the day, you know whose opinion matters the most? The Holy Spirit. And you know who, what you need to do in any of your situations? Whatever the Holy Spirit tells you to do. Next, our lives as Christians have a profound impact on unbelieving spouses and children. God sees and honors the cry of our hearts. So it's talking about how, how I live how you live affects or sanctifies the other unbeliever, especially the children underneath you. Because the promise was made to Abraham and his children. Remember? So everybody underneath Abraham in that covenant received the promise. And so the point that Paul is trying to make is that you have an option, an opportunity to affect your unbelieving spouse. And you get to do it by how you live your life And you actually can bring consecration to their lives because of what God's doing inside of you. Let's look at verse 15. This is the heavy-revy one. If the unbelieving spouse desires not to be with you and walks away from you and leaves you and doesn't want anything with the Lord, and again, this is a complicated situation, but we're given an option to separate and even ultimately divorce. But God doesn't want that. And I don't want that. But what the Lord does want is you to live in peace, not in bondage. And in many cases, I'll say to a a spouse, hey, you don't need to be, let's just pray for that unbelieving spouse. Just stay separated. You don't need to go marry somebody else. You don't need to go get a quick divorce, but there are unique situations and everybody's situation is unique. And the only way that we can navigate that is to be in relationship. The only way we can navigate that is to know your situation. But in this case, it says if the unbeliever departs, God wants us to live in peace and not in bondage. And that's what happened to me. My first wife made the decision to leave, walk away from Jesus and go live in adultery and never came back. In fact, she did come back one time after adultery and I forgave her, but then she left again and God said, I don't want you living in bondage. And I even waited another year and God gave me the freedom to divorce her. Now that's a tough topic to talk about on a Sunday morning. I know there's a lot of theology stuff, a lot of different belief systems. I'm just telling you how I read the Bible. This is what I believe and I'm the senior pastor. So I get to tell you what I think. Now you don't have to agree to that but it shouldn't be a deal breaker, showstopper. I'm just telling you, even then I'm always going to fight. I'm not giving people outs left and right. In fact, I make it so hard. I want to make it. I never want to see a divorce because I know the damage that it does. Okay. So there are biblical guidelines for separation. And I believe before you ever consider a divorce, you should, you should separate first and you should get help, get to marriage counseling, counselors, try to get with us, look, call the church and get on the list. I'm three weeks behind because I'm traveling and more and more marriages are coming up and I can't meet with everybody. But you know what? If you guys will get in the fight and start meeting with couples and supporting each other and get to home groups, get to regeneration, get to the men's and women's groups, get strong. Tell any of the leaders, tell Marlene and Jeremy or Amber and I, that you want to help with marriages. Look, we need people to help. Sometimes it's just sitting with them at the dinner table and doing life together with them so that they have an ear to listen to. And so let's look at verse 16 and say this with me. There is a better way. I love how verse 16 concludes this whole little bank of scriptures because it says, let me say it to you this way. If you leave prematurely, or divorce prematurely, or exit prematurely, or live ungodly, you don't know what could have happened had you not done that. So what God told me in my first marriage is he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to do everything like I tell you, no matter what. She has to make a choice for herself, but I want you to do everything that I ask you to do and to live upright because you never know what it will do. And in that case, it didn't. But in many cases, it does. I can tell you so many stories where one of the spouses came back and now they have an incredible marriage. And that's why he says, how do you know a wife whether you'll save your husband? How do you know a husband whether you save your wife? They're rhetorical questions. I'll say it to you this way. You don't know that you wouldn't have saved your husband or wife. You don't know. And so I'm ready to conclude. I gave you all I had. Pull this scripture up, 1 Corinthians 7, 5. Never taught on this publicly, but I want to bring it to light. If you're going to separate, it needs to be consensual. That's what I shoot for always with married couples, that it be consensual and that you're both in agreement because you're you're at each other's throats. And sometimes you can't see the forest because of the trees and the battle's so strong and the devil is wreaking havoc so strong in your life that sometimes you need to step back. But if you're going to step back, you're stepping back to do what? Fast and pray. And here's how, here's how I want to conclude this. All of us should be fasting and praying for our marriages, whether it's in crisis or not. In fact, when it's not in crisis, that's the best time to be crying out for your marriage. So I'm, And I'm not talking some wimpy sissy prayer. When I pray for my wife, let me tell you how much I got to pray for my wife. No, I'm kidding. When I pray for my wife, I'm crying out to the Lord for God to do what he wants to do in her not what I want. I'm praying that God would make her what he wants. I'm not praying a manipulative prayer to try to get him or her to conform. I'm praying that my wife would come to know Jesus fully and fall in love with him, and that she would have encounters and experiences with the Lord that would change her life. I'm not praying for her to be a better wife, a better mom. I'm praying that Jesus would invade her space, and I'm crying out on behalf, and when she's sick, I'm crying out, Lord, please touch my wife, heal her, I command her, when she's not feeling good, we pray for each other. Those are the things that we do as married couples. And you don't just do it when it's hard and when you're in crisis. And you want to save your marriage, or you're ready to walk away, but you're not willing to pay the price in fasting and prayer. And Satan will work on over time, look at the scripture, to do all he can to get us to a place of lack of self-control and to spin out. And so I love all of you. I care about you. I love this church deeply, so does my wife, and we won't be able to do this without you and without strong families. And I don't want anybody to spin out. And I know how hard it can be. but I know if we get a biblical understanding and we get into relationship with one another, we can be stronger together rather than apart. Fast and pray. pray for your spouse. If you're single, pray for your future spouse. You know what? I believe for every single person here that God is gonna bring the right person to you just like he did with Adam and Eve. I believe that. Live chaste, live upright. And if you have an unbelieving spouse or you're in a difficult situation, let's pray. Let us pray for you. Let us stand together with you, okay? And so that concludes the Marriage and Family series. Thank you all so much.